Hi, I'm David Zichterman, the pastor of Emden CRC. Today we will be looking at John chapter 1, verses 1 through 18, and Lord's Day 23 from the Heidelberg Catechism. But before I get to those passages, I want to read a few verses from Psalm 103. An old Dutch hymnal from 1773 pairs each Lord's Day with a psalm. Lord's Day 23 goes with Psalm 103. I have found this psalm helpful for understanding this Lord's Day, and so I will read part of that as well. From Psalm 103. Praise the Lord, my soul. All my inmost being praise his holy name. Praise the Lord, my soul, and forget not all his benefits. Who forgives all your sins and heals all your diseases. Who redeems your life from the pit and crowns you with love and compassion who satisfies your desires with good things so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. The Lord works righteousness and justice for all the oppressed. He may known his ways to Moses, his deeds to the people of Israel. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in love. He will not always accuse, nor will he harbor his anger forever. He does not treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. As a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. Thus far from Psalm 103. Next, from John chapter 1, verses 1 through 18. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not understood it. There came a man who was sent from God. His name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light, so that through him all men might believe. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. The true light that gives light to every man was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father full of grace and truth. John testifies concerning him. He cries out, saying, this was he of whom I said, He who comes after me has surpassed me, because he was before me. From the fullness of his grace we have all received one blessing after another. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, but God, the one and only, who is at the Father's side, has made him known. And then finally, Lord's Day 23 from the Heidelberg Catechism. 
What good does it do you, however, to believe all this, all this referring to the Apostles' Creed? The answer, in Christ I am righteous before God and heir to life everlasting. And how are you righteous before God? Only by true faith in Jesus Christ, even though my conscience accuses me of having grievously sinned against all God's commandments, of never having kept any of them, and of still being inclined toward all evil, Nevertheless, without any merit of my own, out of sheer grace, God grants and credits to me the perfect satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness of Christ, as if I had never sinned, nor been a sinner, and as if I had been as perfectly obedient as Christ was obedient for me. All I need to do is accept this gift with a believing heart. And why do you say that through faith alone you are righteous? Not because I please God by the worthiness of my faith. It is because only Christ's satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness make me righteous before God. And because I can accept this righteousness and make it mine in no other way than through faith. A common theme in many movies and novels is fear of the outside authority coming in and telling people what they should and shouldn't do. This theme appears in the novel Jaber Crow by Wendell Berry. In this novel, Jaber Crow is the only barber of a small town in, in the Appalachian Hills. Though he never intended to become a barber, it ended up becoming his career. For decades, he charged only 50 cents for a haircut. His customers often stayed long after their hair was cut. His barbershop became the living room of the town. It was the place people went to visit, share the latest news and gossip, discuss politics and crop prices, and drink a cup of coffee. Jaber's barbershop was a simple run shop, nothing fancy. When Jaber wanted a break, he put up a sign which read, I'm out for a walk, I'll be back later. Just about everything he had in the store was hand-me-down or second-hand. He didn't even have running water in his shop. Each morning, he would walk over to his neighbor and fill a couple of buckets. Some of that water he would then heat in a pan. Though it was nothing fancy, this barbershop enabled Jaber to live a contented and simple life. So he was quite surprised and nervous when one day a government inspector came to visit he found the whole experience very uncomfortable, partly because his barbershop wasn't simply his business, but also his home. He lived on the second floor. And not only his home, but also the living room of the community. How would you like it, Jaber asked, if a government inspector walked into your living room, ignored your guests, and began looking over your furniture and making check marks on a clipboard? Eventually, the inspector asked Jaber if he had if he had hot running water. Jaber produced some hot water from his pan, but when the inspector asked where the water came from, all Jaber could say with a sheepish grin, from the heavens? The inspector then retreated to his car and filled out some paperwork. Dread filled Jaber as he waited. When the inspector returned, Jaber was informed his barber shop was in violation of some regulation and would be required to either upgrade or close down. Jaber felt sorry for this inspector. 
he was just doing his job for some manager who was doing his job for some other manager. And yet he also feared this inspector because he knew that if he didn't comply, this outside authority could shut him down or take him to court or both. So he gave up his business, moved away from town, and only gave haircuts for a donation. He had lived most of his life in fear of the outside authority telling him what he could or couldn't do. And finally, the outside authority had gotten the last word. God can also be viewed like that, as an outside authority who simply meddles in our lives to make us miserable, an overly harsh inspector with a clipboard who only comes into town to record our faults and failures. That was the impression the Israelites got from God when he came to them at Mount Sinai. After God had finished giving his Ten Commandments for living as his covenant people, the people were scared, as the Bible puts it. When the people saw the thunder and lightning and heard the trumpet and saw the mountain in smoke, they trembled with fear. They stayed at a distance and said to Moses, Speak to us yourself and we will listen, but do not have God speak to us or we will die. To the Israelites gathered at Mount Sinai, God was like an outside inspector who filled them with dread and whom they preferred to remain at a distance. It's a view that has trickled down through the ages right up to the present time. God, the clipboard-carrying inspector, who is, best to, who is best to be avoided lest he inspect my life. When this view takes hold of our lives, it turns worship, devotion, and service into mere duty. Duties to keep God at bay, to keep God from getting suspicious and coming closer for an inspection. While this view of God can be gleaned from the Bible if read selectively, this view of God is harder to maintain if read in its entirety. As we saw in Psalm 103, God isn't a distant outside inspector, but compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love. God doesn't always accuse, nor does he harbor his anger forever. He doesn't treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquities. Instead, God is like a father who has compassion on his children, whose love and compassion never leave those who fear him, but rather surrounds them. It turns out that God isn't the distant inspector we thought we feared, but exactly the one who can help us, the very one who can forgive us our sins, redeem us from the pit, and crown our lives with love and compassion. God turns out to be the one visitor we always wanted and desperately needed. And while the Old Testament depiction of God is overwhelmingly a God of love and compassion, there is also an unmistakable distance to God as well. While many of the Psalms praise God for his revelation in nature, saying things like, The heavens declare the glory of God, the skies proclaim the work of his hands, and give thanks for the revelation of the law, still many more Psalms begin with a plea like this one from Psalm 10. Why, O Lord, do you stand far off? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? There is a distance in the Old Testament between God and humanity that is hard to put a finger on, that is hard to state, but seems nevertheless to be there. And it can make you long for a more intimate revelation, a New Testament that would reveal the inner workings of God, that would make God seem less like an outside authority who comes only to make life miserable and more like a friend or family member you could rely on in the worst moments. What is wanted is a gracious word from this God. 
the New Testament we need is the Word that became flesh and that was with God in the beginning. If you want to understand what a person thinks, you have to be willing to listen to what they say. Their words reveal what is going on in their mind. It turns out Jesus is the Word of God who, who reveals to us the depth and richness of God's love for us. Jesus is the Word who was in the beginning, the Word who was with God, the Word who was God. The Word who can communicate to us effectively and clearly God's grace, love, and compassion. Jesus, the Word of God, is the intimate revelation of God the world desperately needs. The one, who, the one who expelled for all time the idea that God is only an outside authority who comes to inspect our behavior and write us up. Instead, Jesus, the Word of God, is the outside hero we desperately need. The theme of an outside hero coming to save the day is also another common theme in novels and movies. In high school, I had to read the novel Shane. That story depicts Shane, a mysterious stranger, who comes unexpectedly out of nowhere to rescue Mr. Strait. Shane defends Mr. Strait from bad guys who are trying to steal his land. When the bad guys encounter Shane, they want to know who this stranger is. Shane responds by saying, in effect, I'm a friend of Mr. Strait. Now you get out of here. Jesus is the outside hero who moved into the neighborhood. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. In him was life, and that life was the light of men. Jesus came not as the outside inspector to write us up, but as the outside hero to rescue us from sin, death, and the devil. He came to rescue us from darkness and reveal to us that God is our friend who loves and cares for us. Our need for this rescue is hard to appreciate. It is easy to forget just how wretched we are. Here, here is how our passage describes it. The light shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not understood it. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. The depths of this darkness is actually well illustrated by an allegory that the philosopher Plato once told. He asked his students to imagine a cave full of prisoners. They are chained in such a way that they have to look straight at the wall in front of them. Behind them is a fire, and objects are put in front of the fire to make shadows for the prisoners to see. This is all the prisoners know, shadows on the wall. When somehow one of the prisoners escapes and leaves the cave, he is amazed by all the depth and color found in the world above the cave. When this prisoner returns to the cave, he tells the other prisoners what he saw above. But they wouldn't listen. They accuse him of, of lying. They throw stones at him. They are content with the darkness and shadows. They don't want the light from above. That is what is meant by the light shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not understood it. We are used to the darkness. Our eyes have grown accustomed to it, and pride makes us slow to appreciate that there's more to see. The darkness we live in, that Jesus entered into, is thicker and darker than we typically appreciate. And yet the darkness could not overcome the light of life. Though crucified and murdered, darkness at its thickest, Jesus rose from the dead and offers the gift of life and righteousness to all who believe. This is tremendous good news. 
It proves that God is not an outside inspector just ready to mark us up, though he could if he wanted to. We do plenty that is wrong, as the Catechism states, even though my conscience accuses me of having grievously sinned against all God's commandments and of never having kept any of them, and even though I am still inclined toward all evil, there is a reason why we fear the idea of God as an outside inspector. We know that if God were to inspect our lives, we would be guilty through and through. But the gift of God to a fallen, guilt-stricken, lost-in-the-darkness world is his Son, the Word of God, the light who shines in the darkness, who satisfies God's holy anger against our sin, and who lived a holy and morally upright life. All who believe in him, in the Word made flesh, in Jesus Christ, discover that God is not a distant inspector, but a close friend, ever-present with love and compassion, because God grants and credits to them the perfect satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness of Christ, as if they had never sinned nor been a sinner, as if they had been as perfectly obedient as Christ was obedient. Jesus enables us to stand under God's careful inspection and pass the test. In Christ, God sees no faults in us. He only sees Christ's satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness, which makes me right with God. Or as the Apostle John puts it, Yet to all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. God is not the distant inspector that we dread, but the outside hero who rescues us from darkness and who is full of grace and truth. Amen. Thanks for listening. Uh, next week, I will be looking at Matthew chapter 25 and Lord's Day 24. Thanks. Bye.